Let's turn in our Bibles and continue to worship, shall we? Revelation, wait for it, wait for it. Revelation 21. Revelation 21, that's right. If you need a copy of God's Word, just get the attention of one of the ushers. Revelation 21, verses 1 to 8 is our text for the morning. And we have so much to cover, I'm going to get right at it. And so will you follow along with me as we read these first eight verses of Revelation 21, continuing in our study of this amazing book with amazing truths and amazing realities that are ahead of us. Revelation 21, verse one, the Apostle John. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. It's the word of God. In his book, The Holiness of God, the late R.C. Sproul recounts the day when he was playing stickball in the street. He talks about using the you know, sewer covers, the manhole covers as bases and so on, as you can imagine any little boy with neighborhood boys. He said, we were playing stickball on the street and about the time that his turn to bat came up, he heard this massive commotion go on. It was interrupted, he says, by mass chaos. People started running out of apartment doors. They were screaming and yelling and they were beating dishpans with wooden spoons. And as if that wasn't enough, he suddenly saw his mom run out the door, tears running down her face. And when she reached him, she scooped him up in her arms and she sobbed, it's over, it's over, it's over. And he thought as a young boy, it sure is, I'm never going to get to bat. <laughs> Except she wasn't talking about the game. She was talking about the war. World War II. It's over. Because it was August 15th, 1945. The day that Japan surrendered. And he wrote this in his book. I wasn't sure what it all meant, but one thing was clear. It meant that the war had ended and that my father was coming home. No more airmail to faraway countries. 
No more listening to daily news reports about battle casualties. No more silk banners adorned with stars hanging in the window. The war was over and peace had come to us at last, unquote. I don't know exactly how we're going to feel at this point in the end times, Revelation 21, but I have to believe it's going to be something like that. Judgment day has passed, death has been defeated, and peace has come at last. At last. And that's not even the half of it. Because everything will also be made new. Peace and new. True. There will be a day when God makes all things new. There will be a day. Brand new. Look at verse 5 again. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. All things new. Not just some things, not just most things, but all things, which means every square inch of this entire universe. Can you think of anything outside of the word all? I can't. I can't. There, there will be a day when God will make all things new. Every last vestige of this planet and all that surrounds us in the heavens. And then he says in the first part of verse 6, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. In other words, it's as certain as certain can be done, this making of all things new. It's done. It's certain. Because if God can start it all, he can end it all. If he's the Alpha, he's certainly the Omega. If he can destroy it, he can rebuild it. He has the knowledge, he has the right, and he has the power. Every last bit of it to make every last bit brand new. And we shouldn't be surprised. Now or then, we just shouldn't be surprised at this as we start to get our minds around these massive, massive truths that are written here in just a few verses. Because making things new is what God does, is it not? We, we just saw an example of that in our deacon installation. Making things new is what God does from giving us a new covenant, Jeremiah 31, under which we now live and we celebrate every time that we take communion. This is the new covenant in my blood. It's what God does. He makes things new. He, he creates in us new selves, Ephesians 4.24. He makes us new creations, 2 Corinthians 5.17. We shouldn't be surprised. It's what he does. Plus, this making of things new has been prophesied for ages. We shouldn't be surprised at reading it here in Revelation 21. It's been prophesied like in scriptures, Isaiah 65, verse 17, where God says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into Mind, 700 years before Christ, God started telling us what he's going to do someday, someday. Which means, Alpha and Omega, that he is, and certain as it is, there will be a day, as certain as today, as certain as I stand here and you sit there, there will be a day when all things are made new. 
You don't have to live very long in this life for that to make your soul sing, do you? You don't have to experience the tarnishment of things that come along the way, the heartache and the heartbreak and the breakdowns and heaven help me maintaining a house, the joys of homeownership. You don't have to live very long to let this fill your heart that God is going to make all things new. Glory. Glory. He's going to make all things new, including a new earth on which we will live. Break this down into three parts here. There will be a day when God makes all things new, including a new earth on which we will live. Just like God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1. Just like he created the heavens and the earth in the beginning, he'll make a new heaven and a new earth in the end. Look at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, that is, a new sky and new land, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. He's not talking about heaven proper, but the heavens above, like we found in Isaiah 65. Heavens above, the sky. And the last phrase there, I think, the sea was no more, is intended to emphasize that this isn't just a cosmic makeover. This isn't going to be just a grand television show. But rather, it's going to be a complete remake. A complete remake of the heavens and a complete remake of the earth because the former things are going to pass away. Be no more. And remembered no more. And not just the former physical things, but the former emotional things, as we'll find. Regarding the physical things, it says in Hebrews 1:10 to 12, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Combine that with Revelation 21, and our current earth and sky will not only pass away, but will be replaced with a new heaven and earth. A new one. It's almost too fantastic to say. And in fact, I wouldn't if it wasn't so clear and in the word of God. It's all going to be replaced with a new heaven and a new earth. An earth on which we will live. Live. There will be a day when God makes a new earth that we will inhabit for all eternity. It's one of those realities, I think, that's often missing in our thinking. Maybe even missing in our verbiage. We talk about going to heaven all the time, don't we? At least as believers. We talk about going to heaven all the time. And we sing about it as well. We sing about it in our songs. We, we sing about it in the hymns of old. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. And there's nothing wrong with that, for sure, for sure. Because right now, that's exactly right. That's true. When believers die, they go to heaven to be with God in the Spirit. But that's not where either of us are going to spend eternity. That's not where any believer is going to spend eternity. That's not where God the Father is going to spend eternity. 
And it's not how we are going to spend eternity. We're going to live on a new earth in new bodies so that our ultimate future is literally, literally heaven on earth. And I'm sure, I'm quite certain, that's what I mean when I say heaven and have for years and years, but I didn't always. I'm quite certain that that's what many of the hymn writers imply when they use the word heaven. They're talking about the ultimate reality in the eternal state of heaven literally on earth. Don't miss that. Don't miss that in your thinking. Don't miss that in your singing. It's going to be a real place in a real time without time. We are going to inhabit a new earth in new glorified bodies. And that's not even the best of it. I'll get to that in a few minutes. Because at this point, I can almost see the thought little clouds above some of your heads, the, the questions that are popping up, like, what in the world that looks like? Like, what will our life look like on a new earth? Like, what are we going to do? Play harps all day and float on clouds or something? I think not. I think not. In some ways... It's going to be the same as life right now. Bear with me on this. In some ways, it's going to be the same as life right now because right after announcing the creation of the new heavens and the new earth in Isaiah 65, God says, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. In other words, we're going to be busy and productive with the things of life, just like we should be busy and productive with the things of life right now. We are going to be enjoying the work of our hands and the fruit of our labor, just like in the best of times, we enjoy the work of our hands and the fruit of our labor. And there are going to be no times whatsoever when the labor that we put in is going to be labor. It's not going to be work. It's not going to be a drudgery. You're never going to get up. In fact, you're not going to get up at all, but you're never going to get up and dread going to work. You're never going to look forward to the weekend because A, there won't be a weekend, and B, you want to keep doing whatever you're doing 24-7 for the glory of God and the joy of your soul. Same and different. Same and different. In some ways, heaven on earth is going to be the same, but other things are going to be drastically different, like the fact that all of those activities will be perfectly pure. Not a single thing will be done for a self-serving motive. Not a single thing will be done in vain. You know, without result without production, without efficiency. Not a single thing will be done apart from glorifying God. It's going to be perfectly God-glorifying and nothing done for ourselves. And on top of all that, all that, peace is going to so reign that the wolf and the lamb shall graze together, the Bible says. It doesn't get any more peaceful than that. So life on the new earth will be both the same and different. But the biggest differences are found in verses 2 to 4, starting with this. God's going to make a new city in which we will dwell. There's going to be a day when he makes all things new, starting with a new earth in which we will live, and a new city 
in which we will dwell. Look at verse 2 here. I saw the holy city, John says, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I know I, I say this at the risk of repeating myself ad nauseum, but all of these images are not meant to paint a picture, but rather provide a description. Probably sick of hearing me say that. But this is no different, these verses here. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. We're going to live on a new earth and dwell in a new city. And not just any city, but a city straight from heaven. A city from none other than God, designer and builder himself. A city adorned, like it says there, adorned like a bride getting married to her husband. Beautiful and glorious. You got a picture of, of your bride, beautiful and glorious? It's the first picture that pops up on my screensaver on my computer every single time. I didn't know what in, what in the world was happening when I first started. Did anybody else do that? You put your pictures on screensaver? A, a, a few. All right. The rest of you should. It's an awesome way to see some of your old pictures. But for a while, when I first did that, I was like, why does the same picture keep popping up? Like, I don't want to see that picture. I want to see a better picture. And so I got our wedding picture, and I made that number one. So it automatically pops up every time. You got a picture? You got a picture of a bride? Your bride? It's going to be a city adorned like a bride getting married to her husband in all of its beauty and all of its glory. A city called New Jerusalem. And at first glance, we might think that that's all it is, a city. And that the metaphor of a bride adorned for her husband is simply intended to convey the beauty of the city and the glory of the city. And for sure it does. For sure it does. But in other scriptures, like Ephesians 5, that metaphor is used to refer to Christ and the church. Jesus is the bridegroom and the church is his bride. In fact, we see that in the Old Testament as well where the God's people are sometimes referred to as his bride. And sure enough, we find the same thing in verses 9 and 10. Take a look. Where an angel says there in the middle of verse 9, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. The lamb, of course, being Jesus, which means that the bride is the church. Come, the angel says, I will show you the bride, the church, the wife of the lamb, the wife of the bridegroom, Jesus. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God implying that New Jerusalem is a metaphor and description of the church. Beautiful and coming from heaven. You say, wait a minute. Doesn't John call it a holy city in verse 2? Doesn't he explicitly say that? Sure does. He calls it a, a, a city in verse 2. And in verses 11 to 21 that will get into next week, 
It's described the city in great, great detail with walls and, and gates and streets and beauty and all of the rest. So which is it? Is New Jerusalem the church or a city? Both, I think. Both. The bride is us, the fellowship of the redeemed, and the bride is the city in which we will dwell. Both and. One metaphor with two meanings. One metaphor, two meanings. You might think of it this way. New Jerusalem is a place that so characterizes and befits the people of God, he thinks of them as one. He thinks of the city and the people, his people, the church, as one. It would be kind of like saying to a bride on her wedding day, that dress is so you. That dress is, can you see yourself saying that? I've said that. That dress is, is so you. Do you mean that the dress is actually her? No, no. You mean that the dress is such an accurate expression of who she is. I think this is one of the reasons that brides go to great lengths in shopping for a dress to find the one that just fits exactly perfectly. You're saying that that dress is, is such an accurate expression of who she is. They're essentially one and the same. To see the dress is to see her. And to see her is to see the dress. Same her, same here. To see and refer to New Jerusalem, I think, is to see and refer to the church. And to see the church is to see New Jerusalem. A city that adorns its inhabitants with astounding beauty and its inhabitants adorn it with their astounding glory. The glory of our glorified bodies like that of Christ. There will be a day. Loved one, there will be a day. Let the Lord impress this on your heart. Let this Fill and fuel your soul. Let this enlarge your perspective and enlarge your heart more than you could ever imagine so that you never think about eternity and you never think about heaven the same, at least heaven on earth, the same again. And the best part is that it leads to a new life in the presence of God. There will be a day when God makes all things new, including a new life in the presence of God. This is the part that I could hardly keep myself from saying a few minutes ago. This is the ultimate blessing. God will be there. God the Father. Just like R.C. Sproul's father was coming home, our father is coming home one day. There will be a day. Look at verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. It's a theme you need to know that's demonstrated and, and promised throughout the Bible. I will be your God and you will be my people. Demonstrated, first of all, in the Garden of Eden when God walked and talked with Adam and Eve. He was with them in their presence. 
And, and then it's, it's used, some of these exact words, with the likes of Abraham and Moses. And then reiterated uh, through Jeremiah, saying, you shall be my people and I will be your God. Reiterated to the people of God of old. I will be your people and you will be my, my God, explicitly. It's the very thing, in fact, that he's doing now in the church. God is our God. We are his people through faith in Jesus Christ. It's promised. It was demonstrated. It was promised. It was reiterated. And it's happening. Demonstrated, promised, reiterated, and happening. How many times do we see that in the word of God? But this one's pretty unique because someday it's going to take on new meaning. This promise of, I will be your God and you will be my people. It's going to take on new meaning. We're going to live on a new earth and dwell in a new city in the very presence of God. His very presence. He will dwell with us, it says. Three times in verse 3. Do you see it there? Three times. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, number one. He will dwell with them, number two. They will be his people and God himself will be with them, number three, as their God. Three times he tells us that he will dwell with us as in, in our very midst, everywhere present and always close. Everywhere present as he is right now, omnipresent. One of the attributes of God that never changes, the same yesterday, today, and forever, which means he will be everywhere present then on the new earth and with us, always close. Everywhere present, always close. Everywhere present, always close. It's like the tabernacle in ancient Israel. If you want a, a visual of, of this, tabernacle, the, the tent there that you see in this particular dis description with the Shekinah glory uh, coming from the back of it, from the Holy of Holies. It's the tent that they set up in the middle of their encampment, the Israelites of old, every time they moved from one place to another in their desert wanderings. And it was a tent for A, worship, and B, for the very presence of God. His very presence, the actual presence of God here on earth in the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum of the inner tent of the tabernacle. So that you could say, he tabernacled among them. And the best part is, that's the very word that John uses here in verse 3 for dwelling place. Behold, the dwelling place or tabernacle, literally that's the Greek word, tabernacle, of God is with man. Only then, on the new earth, He's not going to be behind a curtain, but he's going to be actually with us, among us, near us. He will dwell with them, it, it says. How good is that? But that too raises the question, what's it going to be like? Like, What's it going to be like to live in the presence of God? And the answer to that one is, very similar to when Jesus walked the earth. It's going to be very similar to when Jesus was on earth. When Jesus tabernacled among us. Same word, John 1, 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
tabernacled among us. Same word. And so God with us on the new earth is going to be a lot like Jesus was on this earth, leading us and talking with us and interacting with us and blessing us and of all things receiving our worship that Jesus only received in bits and pieces. God the Father is going to receive it on behalf of the entire Trinity all the time, forever without end. It's going to be a lot like that. Leading, talking, interacting, blessing and receiving our worship. Instead of going to God in prayer, stopping what we're doing to go to God in prayer, we're always going to be in prayer. It's one of the reasons I think that we're told to pray without ceasing now. We ought to get used to it because that's going to be life forever. We're, we're never going to have to say, dear God, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It, he's going to be right there. He, like, you don't address your husband or your wife or your kid or your coworker when you've been sitting next to them in a cubicle all day long. You don't say, hey, dear Joe, or, or hey, Joe, or something like that. Or now and then you might say that. But most of the time, when you're in the middle of a living room with somebody in the middle of a, the same room, you just start talking. Isn't that awesome? Did you see what happened in the game yesterday? Did, did, you, did you see the, the storm that we had? How much rain did you, you just start talking? That's how it's going to be. That's how it's going to be directly with God himself. Mind-blowing. It's going to be a lot like that, and it's going to be a lot like the Holy Spirit who indwells us now. A lot like Jesus when he was walking the earth, and a lot like the Holy Spirit who has taken up residence in our bodies as his temple his permanent tabernacle? Or do you not know, as Paul said, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? I hope so. I hope you know the presence of God right now, right now, having given your life to Christ through faith and repentance. Because among other things, it's a foretaste of glory divine. The fact that you have the Holy Spirit within you and I have the Holy Spirit within me by faith and repentance, an act of God's grace in giving us his spirit, it's a foretaste of glory divine, a foretaste of what's to come at the end of time. Only then, on the new earth, God the Father will be present as well in all of his glory. So what the Israelites of old experienced only faintly and what we now experience partially, we're all going to experience fully. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, face to face. It's a new life, hard to imagine, but given just enough snippets to hold on to and revel in and anticipate until the day. God the Father will be present. And, as if that's not enough, it's going to be free of sin and suffering. Verse 4. The life, the new life in the presence of God that we are going to have one day is going to be free of sin and suffering. Verse 4 says, He, God, I love this verse. Do you not love this verse? He, God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes, including tears of remorse, I assume, for those who were just thrown in the lake of fire. Maybe even tears of remorse for the life we lived, but 
maybe not fully for the Lord Jesus Christ? I, I don't know. But the former things are not going to be remembered. He's going to wipe away the tears. Bless you, Lord. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away, just like the earth itself. No more death, no more pain, no more struggle, no more stain. A stain of sin. Because if there's no more death, there's no more sin. Because death is the consequence of sin. As is suffering and hardship and heartache and all of the rest. We're going to be free of it. Free at last. Free at last. All of it. Leaving only righteousness. Only goodness. Only blessing. Only bliss. Loved one, if that doesn't float your boat, you need to check for holes. Because truly no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Including a new earth, a new city, and a new life. But only only for those who want it and persevere. There will be a day when God makes all things new, but only for those who want it and persevere. Only those who desire it. Second part of verse 6. To the thirsty, God says, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The water of life as in the soul-sustaining water of eternal life. Life forever and life to the full. The, the soul-satisfying water of, of forgiveness and righteousness. The life-giving water of Jesus and salvation. That's the water of life. And it's only to the thirsty, the thirsty, it says, that God will give it. Only to the desirous, only to the one who longs for such life made new. Only the one who yearns for it from the depths of their soul. The one who hates the swamp of sin and death and loves the river of life, loves it, loves it, can't wait to wade in it, can't wait to be in it, can't get out of it. Are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? Are you thirsty for the life of God? Or, or, or is, is life so good for you here these days on this earth that, that man, you're, you're perfectly content? All good. I could, I could keep going just like this for all eternity. Oh, pity, pity you. Pity you if you think that way. Whether explicitly or just by default. That's not to say that God doesn't give grace upon grace. That's not to say that he doesn't give us wonderful things in life and beautiful things in life and glorious things in life. But it's to say that this is nothing compared to the life to come. 
And it's the life to come that we should so desire. Enjoy the life to the full now, but yearn, oh, yearn, thirst for the water of life to come. Are you thirsty? I hope you are because that's the only way that you can get the water of life. You can't buy it, you can't earn it, and you can't work for it. It's free and without payment, or it's not at all. But you have to want it. If that's you, praise God. Seriously, praise God. Drink it in and spring up, oh well. That's what Jesus said would happen at the woman, speaking to the woman at the well in John 4, 14. I'll give you a water of life that will spring up. If that's you, drink up and spring up. But if it's not you, get on your knees and repent today, today. Get on your knees and say, oh God, give me a desire for life. Your life, God, eternal life. And then quench it every single day for all eternity. It's a new prayer that I've begun to pray. Oh God, give me a greater and greater longing for the water of life, for the fullness thereof and all that's to come. And Lord, oh, quench it. Quench it like nothing else can. Quench it with pure water. No more pop. No more anything else. Just quench it. I'm going to drink pop still. I'm just talking figuratively. (laughs) Get on your knees and pray that. God, give me a desire for life and quench it every day for all eternity because the water of life is only for those who want it and for those who persevere, those who hold fast. Verse 7, we've seen it before. The one who conquers, God says, that is the one who perseveres, the one who keeps the faith, the one who conquers over sin and the strength that God provides, the one who conquers will have this heritage. That is, this this inheritance of life with God on a new earth. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. My son as in the one designated to receive the inheritance, the one designated to receive this heritage. But only if you want it and overcome The heritage that awaits us for all eternity. God with us on a new earth, in a new city, living a new life. The heritage is ours only if we desire it and persevere. Only if we desire it and overcome. Only if we want it and conquer. Only if we yearn for it and hold fast. We saw it in the first three chapters over and over again. The blessing promised to the one who overcomes. And like a bookend, God is bringing it back to mind to desire what he's promised and so receive it. Otherwise, the consequences are grave. That's the last point. There will be a day when God makes all things new, but only for those who want it and persevere. Otherwise, the consequences are grave. We've seen it before and we'll see it again. It's like God's trying to tell us something. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And then he says this in verse 8. 
But as for the cowardly, that is, the one ashamed of Jesus, the one who doesn't want to take a stand for Jesus, as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Let me say it like this. Those who are constantly thirsty for the Lord and his goodness will receive grace upon grace, all the more of the Lord and all the more of his goodness. But those who are constantly sinful, constantly unrepentant, will receive the lake of fire. The lake of fire. There will be a day I don't know exactly how we're going to feel on that day, but I have to believe that this life is going to seem a lot like stickball in the street and the next like baseball in a stadium. When the old has passed away and all things are new. So whatever you do, whatever you do, hold fast and keep the faith. Let's pray. Father, impress this on our heart, will you? That there will be a day. That there will be a day. Oh God, impress it on us. Don't let this be a check off. Don't let this go in one ear and out the other. Don't write it on erasable ink or anything else. God, impress it, etch it on our hearts that there will be a day. And use it, God, to remove our doubts and to assure our soul. In fact, God, use these truths to fill our soul. Use them to increase our anticipation. Use them to enlarge our desire and fortify our perseverance and all the rest, God, all the rest. We long for the day, Lord. So help us to hold fast, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.